Welcome to the Resident Evil Lorecast, the podcast that will explore the various mediums and lore of the Resident Evil franchise, such as the video games, movies, novels, and more. And here are your hosts, Ariel, Daniel, and Aaron. Got something that might interest you. <laughs> well, welcome back to the Resident Evil Lorecast. I'm your host, Aaron, and joining me are my fellow hosts, Ariel. Hello. And Daniel. Hi there. And today, we're going to be talking about Resident Evil 2 BOWs and characters. Woohoo. <laughs> All right. So, who's starting us off? That'll be me. Who do you got for us? Uh, who do you think? My boy Leon. <laughs> so, let's go into the early life of Leon Scott Kennedy. Oh, shall we? Not much is known about Leon's life prior to his enlisting in the police academy. Upon graduating from the police academy at the age of 21, Kennedy requested assignment to work for the Raccoon Police Department. His reason of choice was because of the widely publicized murders taking place in and around the Arclay Mountains. Kennedy had no travel plans or apartment in Raccoon City, and in the hasty departure, his girlfriend broke up with him. Oh, seriously? Like, why would she break up with him? <laughs> Jeez. Oh, hold on just a minute. So, this, he graduated from police academy at 21. That's not uncommon. But then to top it all off, he's like, hey, let's go to the place where the most murders are happening. So the man is already a hero. And then his girlfriend goes, meh, screw you. Oh, that's a little harsh. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty harsh. Although to move there without any travel plans or anything, that's kind of, eh. But whatever, I'd go anywhere he told me to go. Stopping at a motel for the night, he passed out from heavy drinking and woke up on the afternoon of the 29th. Kennedy continued driving into the city hungover and now late for reporting into the station. So now we know why Leon was late for his first day of work. <laughs> I can't believe it's because of heavy drinking. That is just insane. Well, he was heartbroken. His girlfriend broke up with him. Mm. So then it goes into the events of two, which we've already covered, so I'm not mm -hmm. going to bother going into that. And that's what I've got on my boy, Leon. Okay. What do you got for us, Danny? All right. Well, I have Claire Redfield without a middle initial or middle name, as I said last episode. Why Leon's got to be different? Oswald's got to be different. All right. So as I got on my tangent of middle initials... <laughs> All right, we'll go talk about Claire and her early life. So we're going to hear some familiar names in here from the last game. Mm-hmm. Yep, last game. I had to think about that. Claire grew up with her older brother, Chris. wonder who that is. Mm. After their parents died. Oh, well, went happy to sad. With this event, the two developed a very close bond. When Chris joined the U.S. Air Force, she was introduced to his new friend, Barry Burton. And he became a close family friend. After high school, Claire attended university where she developed her interest in motorcycle customization, owning two. So I think she's more of a aficionado at motorcycles than Leon. I mean, that's all right, I guess. 
Claire also specialized in lockpicking, becoming an expert with skill. After her brother moved to Raccoon City with Burton to serve in special tactics and rescue service, Claire visited him in the city. Soon after, he would teach her hand-to-hand and firearms training. Now everything comes together. Maybe a little bit. I was always curious how she knew how to fight. Well, with a brother like Chris, I mean, you really had to ask yourself that? If he had enough time, he probably would have uh, put her through her training se- the training session that he did to get so swole to punch boulders. <laughs> <laughs> she could only punch rocks right now. Yeah. Or pebbles. <laughs> pebbles. He also gave Claire a golden lighter and his star's knife. If that's an issued item, I think he's probably in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In August 1998, Chris left for Europe to investigate Umbrella. After weeks of not hearing from her brother, Claire left her college in late September for Raccoon City to find out where he was. She was stopped. She stopped at the Mazoi gas station in the outskirts on September 29th, unaware of the zombie outbreak that engulfed the city for several days. Claire quickly discovered the zombies when investigating the inside of the convenience store to see Daniel Cortini. Oh, nice to meet you, Daniel. Getting his throat ripped out by one of them. <laughs> Upon leaving, she was saved by Leon, middle initial S, Kennedy, who had also stopped at the station. After driving towards the city, they were separated by a fiery accident, but they both fought their way to the Raccoon Police Station for shelter. Leon and Claire soon discovered the station had collapsed due to the outbreak of the T-Virus. Being that the only unzombified police officers were the injured Lieutenant Marvin Bragna, Elliot Edward, and Police Chief Brian Irons. And after that, it's basically just information from that we covered last episode mm-hmm. for the game itself. That's all I've got on Claire at this time. I was going to say Leon accidentally there. You've been saying it left and right anyway. Well, yeah, because he's got that middle <laughs> initial, so he stands out. All right. So, Ariel, who's next? We've got Ada Wong. Mm-hmm. So, Ada Wong is the pseudonym for an enigmatic, unnamed spy of Asian American descent. So, that's not even her name. Now, that's interesting. Mm. I, for years, have thought it's Ada Wong. She has gained notoriety in the corporate world for being able to handle serious situations and the most difficult requests without guilt. She acted secretly in the background of many biohazard incidents and collected information which became useful to several organizations, while at the same time operating to undermine them. However, Ada follows only her own true purpose and has often betrayed the organizations and customers she is affiliated with to achieve it. Of course she would. All right. Her early life. Ada's personal life is a complete mystery. Her ethnicity and nationality are left unconfirmed. And when and where she was born are also unknown. Even her birth name is not believed to be real. However, she is known to have a dark past. Ada also received special training as a spy for a Chinese criminal syndicate in the underworld involved in the black market arms trade. As an independent contractor for the syndicate, Ada worked for many external clients and organizations, but often betrayed them as a means to fulfill an unknown true purpose. 
One of her known clients was Derek C. Simmons, a high-ranking U.S. government official and leader of the secret organization, The Family. Simmons appreciated her as an excellent spy and imposed many orders on her for his own ideals and ambitions. He harbored a distorted attachment and love for her and thought they were a perfect partnership due to the genius characteristics they both shared. This would, however, prove to be his eventual undoing. In the 1990s, Wong's syndicate ordered her to infiltrate the rising bioorganic weapon underworld to carry out industrial espionage centered on gathering information on this new type of weapon. By 1998, Wong became involved with a bioweapons developer competing with the Umbrella Corporation. This group, otherwise known as the organization, frequently questioned her loyalty due to her refusal to tell them her identity. By 1998, Wong had successfully infiltrated Umbrella USA on the organization's behalf. Possibly assigned to Chicago, she became close with Dr. John Clemens, chief researcher at the Arclay Laboratory. Due to this connection, Wong was able to gain information on the Umbrella's research, and it is possible, though not definite, that she visited the laboratory at one point. Clemens himself was unaware of this security breach and was fully committed to their relationship, going as far as recording his username and password as the, at the lab as John and Ada. Clemens himself would die following an outbreak of the Epsilon strain T-virus, which ended with the facility being destroyed. And the rest is about her appearance and two, which we've already covered. Mm-hmm. So go Ada. So I'm going to stop us here real quick because I have a question proposed to both of you. How would you feel about a Resident Evil game that was solely Ada? I'd play it. Does it go into her background or does it leave you completely unknown on that? Like, Well, see, that's what I would love to see. I would love to see going completely into her background, finding out her identity and all these other things. And I'm, I would really like to see it nine to do have to do something with Rose. Then that would be a cool kind of thing. Well, what would be cool about that is every game that Ada's in, Leon's there. So I would be more than okay with this. How do we know that was going there? Yeah, yep. I know. Yep. No, but really, even if Leon wasn't in it, I'd play it because it would be interesting to explore Ada more and like bit by bit learn more about her mm-hmm. past or what she's really up to her own agenda. Yeah, and I, I believe it would... Personally, I feel like it would be a good kind of shall we say arcing point from everything that happened in Village to continuing the series I feel like using Ada as like an arcing point would kind of answer those questions that we have about Ada as well as introducing Rose as the next kind of generation of main character yeah I'm totally on board with this I think that's a good idea I'm just trying to think of what opposing B.O.W.'s would be in this based off her past. Like if there's an opposing company that she worked for, were they doing research at the same time? Did they have their own virus strain and whatnot? 
something to mirror Umbrella, but not, you know, we would hear more about it if it definitely mirrored them. But. Oh, yeah, definitely. I feel like it would be one of those things where the company caught word of Rose's existence and Ada kind of betrays that company and goes to work with Chris to train Rose to use her abilities and, you know, kind of like they did with Ethan Winters. I mean, that would, to me, it would be a pretty cool concept for a game. I just wanted to pitch that to you guys. <laughs> I'm totally on board. Well, I mean, if Capcom will pay us to write the stuff, we will do it for them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? Well, anyway, who's next for us, Daniel? That would be Sherry Birkin. And this will only cover her stuff as far as Resident Evil 2 because there is stuff further for mm-hmm. her. And I forgot to do for Claire, but uh, Sherry's blood type is O. Okay. Oh, I meant to do that with Ada too because of you. It's A B. <laughs> there's no C. No, no C. I love just how there's AB. no positive. There's no negative. It's <laughs> right. just. I guess in the maybe. universe timeline, maybe like you're just. You're, you're just, just one. You're thing. neutral blood types. <laughs> there's no positive or negatives on me, uh, so maybe that works. Maybe that's why everybody can get infected so easily. Yeah. All right. So Sherry Birkins' early life. She was born around the year 1986 to doctors William and Annette Birkin, two virologists who took part in T-virus research at Umbrella's isolated Arclay Laboratory. Sherry's relationship with her parents was strained due to their busy work schedules and despite their early 1990s transfer to the nest in the industrial district, she was frequently neglected. Her parents were senior researchers of the G-virus project, a eugenics project that oversaw the creation of Golgotha, my favorite. A progenitor strain they believed could be used to improve the human race. Little else is known of this stage of Sherry's life, though she was enrolled as a student at East Raccoon Elementary. Her mother also entrusted her with a locket, disguised as her 11th birthday present, that was related to her and William's research. As a potential security risk, Sherry's safety was important to her parents, who wanted her to stay away from strangers who could be after Golgotha. This will be a little bit up to the Raccoon City incident. On the night of Tuesday the 22nd in September, the Umbrella Security Service infiltrated the laboratory, shot Sherry's father, and stole his samples of Golgotha. With a single remaining sample, William infected himself, transformed into the monster simply known as G, and killed the attackers, but released the T-virus into the sewers in the process. The virus eventually spread to Raccoon City's drinking water. As the T-virus showed itself on Thursday, 24th of September, it reached a critical mass that eventually turned tens of thousands of residents into mutants, overwhelming the efforts and resources of the Raccoon Police Department and Raccoon Fire Department to stop the outbreak. Wow, so much to get to Sherry. Sources differ as to what what led Sherry to the Raccoon Police Station, with one account suggesting she was pulled out of her lessons at East Raccoon Elementary School, possibly on Thursday, and another suggesting she fled there at some point during the week when her parents failed to return from work. Whichever happened, Sherry found the police station to be a dangerous environment with more people transforming from the contaminated water. Basically, after that is where 2 really takes place for her. And that is what I have on Sherry until a later game. See, the whole thing I got from that was the contaminated water. There's the answer to my question. Yes, in fact, the contaminated water did play a part in the reign of zombies across Raccoon City. I just want to say that 
That's a really, really sad story for Sherry. <laughs> It is. I mean, her parents were too busy for her, and then they give her a locket on her birthday, which really was just to contain the virus. Yeah. It's sad, like, sad. Some people were driven, and they were driven to research. I mean, they, they at least gave her something. They figured she was going to stay safe enough to give her this sample of the mm-hmm. Golgotha, so they had to, even if they were neglecting her, they still had the competence to, even if it's the virus was more important, they had to keep her safe then. Well, that's one way to take care of your child. <laughs> Not the right way. All right. So on that, I have Annette Birkin, the mother. Annette Birkin was a virologist employed by Umbrella USA and one of the administrators at their nest facility in the outskirts of Raccoon City. She was the wife of fellow administrator Dr. William Birkin and mother of Sherry. Little is known of Annette's early life other than her training as a virologist, which earned her a career at Umbrella USA's Arclay Laboratory under the head of research, Dr. William Birkin. The two married in the mid-1980s, and by 1986, Annette had given birth to their daughter, Sherry. While they remained married, Annette felt they had prioritized their research careers over it. Yeah, a little bit. Following her husband's 1988 discovery of the Golgotha virus, Umbrella HQ began heavily funding the resulting project, with the construction of a massive laboratory complex located in the Arclay Mountains, deep below the Umbrella chemical plant being completed in 1991. Publicly, the Birkins were treated as its managers, but it was only part of the facade to disguise the research. The two spent the next seven years aggressively committed to their new research project, and their daughter Sherry became neglected as a result. In 1998, the relationship between the Birkins and Umbrella HQ began to quickly wane, with William's hopes of a promotion to the corporation's head office being unfulfilled. Like his friend, Dr. Albert Wesker, he felt the need to leave Umbrella, but would not go without the virus being completed. Annette stayed with her husband, and as they made preparations to sell the virus to the U.S. military in exchange for protection, with Umbrella having spies within the U.S. military, the gamble was quickly uncovered. Further research funding was cut, and the company made demands for the virus to be handed over. During these developments, Annette agreed to an interview with freelance reporter Ben Bertolucci, who told her he was doing a story on Umbrella's new scholarship program. Bertolucci instead interrogated her about Nest and Golgotha, alarming her with his information-gathering skills and forcing her to leave. Unknown to her, Bertolucci was in fact working with Ada Wong, a spy for a rival company Wesker had joined. And the rest I have was information already covered. And that is Annette. And how it does not list a blood type for her, Daniel. It doesn't. <laughs> Yet it lists a blood type for William. Ah, poor Annette. You know what? I'm just going to say she has O blood. <laughs> just because. Let's throw that in there. Oh, goodness. All right, Daniel. So let's hear about William. Yeah, we're going to continue with the characters. And just uh, 
Put this in Ariel's face. He does have a obla type. <laughs> wow. Yep. Don't worry. I'm always going to list it if I remember. I forgot Claire's, but it was there. Uh, all right. We'll start with his early years. He was a child prodigy who earned his doctorate as a teenager. I think Rebecca was competing with him. Well, she didn't have a doctorate, though. In 1977, at the age of 15, he was employed by Umbrella Pharmaceuticals and offered to take the executive training program at a laboratory in Arklay County under the oversight of Dr. James Marcus. Birkin and Dr. Albert Wesker developed a friendly rivalry at the school while being conditioned to Umbrella's ethical ideas. Ideals. Uh, Ethical is a very loose term for them, Mm -hmm. I would say. Their education was concluded on July 29, 1978, when a decision was made to close the laboratory school. Birkin and Wesker were offered senior roles at the nearby Arclay Laboratory and, the, and transferred there two days later. The Arclay Lab, 1978-1991. to 1991. On their first day as senior researchers, the two were introduced to Lisa Trevor a young woman who had been a test subject at the lab since 1967. Laboratory's chief researcher approved Birkin's study into splicing of their experimental tyrant virus, or T-virus, with genes from recently collected Ebola virus samples Umbrella had acquired for the purpose of vaccine research. T-virus strain at the laboratory had a rapid and high fatality rate, making it useless as a weapon as it was unlikely to spread far. Birkin's study led to a new T-virus strain, which could keep humans alive in an aggressive, brain-damaged state. Zombies. <laughs> Knew that was coming, even though they first didn't call them that. Don't know why. Yeah. In July 1981, Umbrella officially employed child prodigy Dr. Alexia Ashford as a senior virologist, believed at the time to be the granddaughter of the Umbrella co-founder, Dr. Edward Ashford, The 10-year-old quickly gained an aura of majesty within the company. Birkin was severely affected by this, firstly, with it damaging his pride of being a child prodigy, and secondly, his fellow researchers' constant discussion of it. So since she's such a much better child prodigy, he's now jealous. He must have taken pointers from Spencer. (laughs) All right, let's see here. And this will be the last section I do. With research having stalled since 1978, Birkin was determined to prove himself and took part in constant research to solve the new problem of some 10% of the population being immune to the T-virus. So he's going to solve the problem that everybody's immune to it mostly. (laughs) Sounds counterproductive to humanity. This, Birkin solved with the development of bio-organic weaponry and successfully developed Hunter A, a bioweapon created through bonding reptilian DNA with a fertilized human egg through the T-virus. In 1983, Dr. Ashford's death was announced company-wide, though Birkin continued his own research even with the imagined rivalry over. During his time at Arclay Laboratory, Birkin began a relationship with another researcher named Annette, which we already heard of. They married sometime in the mid-1980s and had a daughter, Sherry, who was born around 1986. However, while they remained married, it was indicated that both prioritized their research careers more than the marital union they had. 
which we have double confirmation of now. Yes. And that's basically what I have before mostly gets into combined with Annette's background as well as what happened in two. So something I want to bring up here, we we constantly talk about how it's impossible for all of these people to be graduating and going into like doctorate programs and stuff at young ages. I think what we're forgetting about here is the fact that Umbrella paid lots of money to seek these special children out and put them in this special academy. So for Birkin to get so salty that somebody was better than him, it's it's to be expected. Like he had to think so highly of himself that nobody was better than him. And the whole time, this is this is what I can't help but laugh about. The whole time, Albert Wesker is sitting there going, oh, yeah, I'm not even worried. <laughs> he was probably hatching up a plan to exploit it. He mm-hmm. probably would have started the rumors like, oh, yeah, there's a child prodigy here. <laughs> We should so make Birkin mad about this. Because <laughs> like me, I could see Wesker doing that. Because I would do that if I was in Wesker's place. <laughs> All right, Ariel. Who do you have for us? Well, last and certainly least, I've got Chief of Police Brian Irons. I say that because he's corrupt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Brian Irons was a Raccoon City police officer and chief of police of the Raccoon Police Department until 1998. Despite his position, Irons was deeply involved in corporate corruption, like other city officials, and took bribes from Umbrella USA to keep the company out of investigations. During the 1998 Raccoon City destruction incident, Irons suffered a mental breakdown and began killing fellow officers and refugees and was killed violently either by Dr. William Birkin or a G. Parasite. Irons also had a violent history with women and is suspected of having been a serial killer, though due to his position in the RPD and the destruction of the city, these murders were never formally investigated. Holy crap! Yeah, I said he's he's a bad dude. Uh, Yeah. So, let's get into some of his early life. Before his police career, Irons is known to have gone through a university education. He was put under psychiatric examination after two incidents in which he was accused of violent aggression and sexual assault towards female students. Due to his excellent academic performance, however, these incidents were not criminally investigated. Of course not. Irons made a career in the Raccoon Police Department and by early 1996 reached the rank of Chief of Police. Later contributions for the RPD on his behalf and gain would include the purchase of a recently retired art museum for its strategic location and parking space, a budget move allowing for funding of equipment for the force and collections of artistic works, which Irons claimed would also help out with combating crime. This position put him in a very close relationship with Umbrella USA, a company which was not only a major employer in the city, but was also performing top-secret military bioweapons research involving illegal human testing in violation of the 1972 Bioweapons Convention. Every month, starting from April 1996, 
Chief Irons received between $1,500 and $15,000 from Annette Birkin, which he used to fund his art habit. He would distribute pieces of his collection throughout the police station. Irons was also placed in charge of the Raccoon City Orphanage to disguise Umbrella's use of child test subjects. On the 6th and 16th of every month, he visited Umbrella's top-secret facilities to hold meetings with Umbrella's Raccoon City facility heads and, if needed, was expected to use the police force to prevent Umbrella's illegal research from being exposed to the public. Under Chief Irons' watch, Umbrella donations led to the creation of the Special Tactics and Rescue Service, an elite law enforcement team comprised of scientists and ex-military personnel who could use their expertise to solve cases the rest of the RPD was not qualified or experienced to handle. Led by Dr. Albert Wesker, an Umbrella intelligence agent, STARS was effectively Umbrella's private army. Whether or not Chief Irons knew Dr. Wesker was an Umbrella agent is unknown. To maintain power and avert suspicion of his illegal activities, Iron presented a picture-perfect public image to the people of Raccoon City, bolstered by fluff news stories and philanthropy work. So now for the serial killings. Chief Irons harbored violent tendencies throughout his life and did not hold these back during his time with the RPD. Irons is known to have threatened and committed a number of murders while with the RPD, though the identity of these victims is largely unknown. The earliest known possible victim was his secretary, who he hired in <clears throat> April 1998 and who disappeared the following June after uncovering evidence of bribes. An Umbrella sewer facility manager was almost killed in August when Irons threatened him with a gun. In August and September, a total of eight young women were snatched from the streets and apparently murdered in the city sewers, though no bodies were found by RPD search parties. All were described in local papers as being unmarried blonde women between the ages of 18 and 23. Taxidermy was a hobby of Irons's, a fact that was evident in the decor of his office. At some point, he moved on from animal subjects to human ones, and is known to have used a secret room for the killing of his victims, using his experience to remove organs and bones for use as trophies. His possession of chloroform indicates not all victims would have been dead when cut open. How disgusting is that? I am so upset that they didn't kill him off sooner. Right? <laughs> That's just... Whew. All right. So the rest of it is his appearance in two. So something I want to bring up with him particularly. Now we have an answer to why the RPD was in an ex-art museum. Yeah. And that also explains why there's so many statues and all these other things. That's something I've wondered for years of why a police station would have giant statues and decorations as far as the eye can see. It just, it doesn't make any sense. I just, <laughs> I figured they were just fancy. <laughs> but now fancy. everything comes together. Yeah, well, he shouldn't be that much of a jerk and be allowed to buy pretty art. No, he should have been 
set ablaze in the streets. Well, jerk is a very soft term for what I really want to say, but <laughs> we'll stick with jerk. Well, on that note, let us dive into our mid-break because we have some pretty exciting news I would like to share about the Resident Evil 4 VR edition that's coming out. <laughs> Well, here we are in the middle of the show. Ariel, what have you brought for us this week? Of course, I'm always first. (laughs) Ladies first. No, no, no. You're just lame. Okay. So starting October 26th, Kickstarter will begin a 16 day crowdfunding campaign for Resident Evil, the board game. (laughs) Kickstarting it. Yes. Yes. Just as in the video game and Resident Evil, the board game, players will take on the role of members of the Special Tactics and Rescue Service, who wind up stranded in a mysterious mansion filled with deadly monsters. The co-op game will include both combat and exploration. Hmm. I know. I'm excited about this. Players will be exploring a randomized version of the video game's iconic mansion, Sort of like a more thematic, more tactical version of the Avalon Hill classic, Betrayal at House on the Hill. Which we have played and is awesome. Yeah, that game's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty excited about this game. So I think what we'll do is we will back it and then we may do a Twitch live night where we play it and we'll chat with the fans. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. So just to reiterate this, this begins on October 26th for all those that are interested in funding this kickstarter and who's the company doing it i believe it's steamforged steamforged okay so be on the lookout for steamforge and their kickstarter for the resident evil board game yep Mm. all right daniel what'd you bring for us today as always merchandise except for that one time (laughs) all right so my perusing through the internet Mm. i came across on amazon of all places a Resident Evil Umbrella Corporation shower curtain. <laughs> you laugh. As if I, shower time wasn't scary enough. But I would own it as well if I didn't have glass doors. <laughs> <laughs> but it does have... It actually looks pretty awesome because it has the umbrella logo in the middle. And it says umbrella. And then it almost looks like it has like the white biohazard symbol. Mm-hmm to an extent on it and you can get it in two different sizes it looks like and according to this only 13 left on each one oh we know how that works we stocking um one size is 70.8 inches yeah 0.8 i don't know why i just didn't go 71 yeah to or by 70.8 inches or 59 inches by 70.8 inches one is the bigger one is 32.89 before shipping and the other one is 26.89 before shipping so i will post that in the discord and it will probably be posted on twitter as well at one point if you are interested find it or you can look up resident evil shower curtain should take you to it Mm -hmm. it is brand is y spring or probably ye spring Mm -hmm. is it that's what i've got i want it I'm saying. No, I'm going to get it. I'm going to put it in my shower. And as Norman stabs me, I'm going to die happy in the midst of a Resident Evil shower curtain. See, I just, it's, shower time's already scary enough when you're home alone. And like you hear that one noise, you're like, oh, what was, what was that? 
having a Resident Evil, it, it would make it worse if it was blood handprints all over it too. I, terrified. I mean, there is blood on it, but see, see, that just makes it worse. <laughs> it might be who's ever took it's the picture. It's cool. We should buy it and just hang it on the studio wall. Oh no! Like I said, <laughs> while Norman is stabbing me in the shower, I'm going to die with a Resident Evil shower curtain. <laughs> Well, I didn't bring shower curtains or board game news, but I did bring news on the Resident Evil 4 VR experience for the Oculus 2. It is coming out October 21st. We finally have a hard date for it. Right before my birthday. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, It will be, I think it's already out for pre-order. The information I found, it didn't really, wasn't really specific about that. So, you know, if you all can find some through your deeper digging you can find some more information just hit us up on the discord or twitter and let us know because uh, i definitely want to pre-order my copy but on that note that's all i have and let's dive back into our bow's now all right so we are back from our break now time to dive into the B.O.W.'s. And I believe Daniel has our first list. Yeah, so I'm going to go over one of the more infamous ones, at least in further games, the liquor. All right, which is based off a human mutation. Liquors are mutant humans that result from a second set of mutations experienced by zombies, in particular those who have consumed large quantities of biomass to sustain their metabolism. So apparently if you eat enough food as a zombie, you're like a gremlin, you transform. Lickers are noted for their large exposed brains, lack of skin and eyes, extreme sensitivity to sound, and their eponymous tongues. They should not be confused with crimson heads, mutants which are the result of a separate T-virus strain undergoing the similar V-act process. Also, they aren't basically evolutions of the crimson heads I stand corrected but I wonder if that means you could have a crimson head liquor now that would be terrifying I mean technically they already have like a crimson head a little bit it's reddish pink whatever it's a a shade of red the history of them oh this is even shorter the earliest known liquors appeared in the second half of 1998 and mutated from zombies infected with an unknown t-virus strain which was further modif- which was a further modification of Epsilon. Liquors were kept as test subjects at Umbrella's nest facility beneath Raccoon City, and a modified version was created there. When the modified E strain at nest leaked out of the facility on the night of September 23rd, it contaminated Raccoon City's drinking supply and infected tens of thousands of people who therefore were capable of mutating into liquors. An apparent colony of liquors emerged at the start of the outbreak at the Apple Inn. It was a wonderful place before then. A hotel that had caught fire. Another colony emerged at the Raccoon Police Station. No, oh, that's a good job on them. Which was besieged by zombies and became another colony for liquors. Other liquors were encountered on China Island in November 1998, which may have been citizens infected with the same modified E-strain or otherwise escaped test subjects. And then the other information on the liquors is for future information. All right, so the next one is the alligator. 
A number of alligators were infected during the Raccoon City destruction incident. An alligator lived in the sewers underneath Raccoon City. This very large mutant grew from a baby which, like the urban legends, was flushed down the toilets, fulfilling the sewer gator myth. That's freaking awesome. <laughs> this alligator became a threat to a band of survivors moving through the sewers in search of a way to nest. It was killed when it bit into a fuel canister fuel canister and a well-targeted shot caused it to explode in its mouth. Some abandoned and dissected alligator corpses can be found in the incineration disposal plant's P-12A's treatment room, and another alligator residing in the lakeside area of the Raccoon Zoo was one of the main attractions until the virus outbreak occurred. The survivors who crossed the small lake had to deal with the monster while swimming across. And... The Giant Moth A giant moth was research was conducted in the Nest Underground facility. During the Raccoon City destruction incident, at least one moth escaped its chamber and made the B5F computer room its nest, probably because of the warmth, using the facility's air conditioning system to hunt in the main shaft and bring prey back. Let's see here biology of it. The research into the moth-based BOW was a failure in this experiment. Mutating to a larger size normally did not keep them in proportion, making their wings strong enough only to hover over the ground. However, they did also develop the ability to spit poison on prey as a means of compensating for their flight problems. That is mostly what they have, though the larva would be put into a person and then it would burst out of them if need be by the moth. I have something to add to uh, the giant moth. Just where I said that. Anyway. Wonder if one escaped and became the Mothman. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Now you're throwing all kinds of things in here. <laughs> I know. Stick to Resident Evil. I'm sorry. There's a whole other podcast on Fallout. <laughs> all right, Ariel. So what is our continuation B.O.W.? Well, I'm going to go into the cockroaches. <laughs> cockroaches are just disgusting. Anyways. <laughs> That's why I killed them. Blah. See, I, I believe I would be fine in a Resident Evil apocalypse when it came to the bugs because, you know, that's what I do for a living anyway, so... <laughs> hmm. Ugh, cockroaches are a common arthropod in North America, residing primarily in an urban environment. It makes sense, therefore, that they are encountered in urban-based viral outbreaks, such as those in Raccoon City and on Sheena Island. But they don't seem to have been affected in Rockford Island incident. Cockroaches show little to no change in their body or intelligence when infected with the T-virus. Common cockroaches infected with the T-virus covered the sewers of Raccoon City. Although generally harmless, when larger roaches get together, they can pose a threat to humans and are responsible for the near-total extermination of Raccoon City's rat population. Well, I mean, there's that. At least it got rid of something else. Hey, that's the way of life. <laughs> These creatures have been known to use cannibalism as a way of ex. Assessing nutrients. 
a cockroach was infected with an unidentified virus, which allowed Dr. Cameron to take control of it. She controlled the creature up until she saw a rat, to which she passed on the virus. A cockroach infected with the Ouroboros virus also grew to a humanoid size and had large arms that had sharp talons and could impale victims within range. Gross. Gross, gross, gross. And that's what I have on cockroaches. Thank goodness that's over. I just want to say I am so impressed with Capcom's research because thus far they've gotten everything right about the military and now roaches. I'm impressed. No, I'm not. Really not. All right, let's go into the tyrant. And we will be covering, or I will be covering, the T-00 tyrant. Okay. So, T-00 was a tyrant sent into Raccoon City during the 1998 Raccoon City destruction incident. T-00 was one of six within the T-103 series that were airlifted into the city and was given instructions to recover a G-virus sample from the pendant of Sherry Birkin and kill all surviving officers and civilians found in Raccoon Police Department. Where it began... Uh, let me redo that. <clears throat> and civilians found in the Raccoon Police Department where it began a hunt of Leon S. Kennedy and Claire Redfield, who were trying to escort Sherry to safety. Umbrella's control over the outbreak in Raccoon City ended with the collapse of the UBCS as an organized force on the night of September 26th, and under Article 12 of Umbrella's internal emergency procedures, Colonel Sergei Vladimir was given command of all remaining personnel. On the night of September 29th, T-00 and five other T-103 tyrants were flown over the city in an SH-60B Seahawk to take part in new missions. While five were sent to incineration disposal plant P-12A to fight the Delta Force operatives present, T-00 was given two unique missions. Firstly, it was to eliminate any survivors in the Raccoon Police Station, which Umbrella could not verify had already fallen. Second, it was to locate a sample of the Golgotha virus and return it to a designated pickup point. And that's what I have on the T-00 Tyrant. And the last one I'm going to cover, because all the other creatures we've already covered in previous episodes, is G. 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 G is the name given to any mutant created through the infection process of the Golgotha virus, whether as the patient zero or their descendants. For convenience, only these descendants will be referred to as G here. These Gs come in two varieties. The first is the immediate offspring of the patient zero, which mature from embry embryos into tumor-scarred humanoid forms if rejected by a human parasitic host. The second is their own descendants, which remain in embryonic form and cannot develop further. The only known occurrence of Gs was during the Raccoon City destruction incident that took place in September of 1998. Monica, a researcher on the G-Virus R&D team, 
was parasitized by a G embryo that crawled down her throat when she was attacked by a giant moth in the nest. Not genetically compatible, it rejected Monica and tore out of her chest. The creature matured into its adult form within minutes, but was soon killed by a group of survivors on the surface. Dr. William Birkin, who infected himself with the virus after being shot, hunted for human hosts to carry his embryos. The only confirmed parasitism was that of his own daughter, Sherry, who was a genetic match. Though he also interacted with Brian Irons and Ben Bertolucci, among presumably others, it is not known if he parasitized them or simply killed them. During the events of the Raccoon City outbreak, the G-Virus would leak into the city's sewer system. This resulted in G-infested cesspools, forming in various areas and tunnels in the sewers. These G-infected areas developed tumorous growths that spawned multiple imperfect G-forms in their embryos, which then ran rampant throughout the tunnels. So G is terrifying on multiple levels. <laughs> yep. That's why it's my favorite virus. Mm, that is... What? Right, so we've covered a lot in this episode. We've covered a lot of our characters and a lot of our BOWs. In the next episode, we're going to compare everything from Resident Evil to original, the 1998 edition, to the new remake. So that's going to be fun. Yeah, because in the remake, my favorite tyrant's in it, Mr. X. (laughs) All right, so now comes the important part. My favorite part. How many Leons, Ariel? Five out of five. And do you know why? Because Leon's in it? Yes. Well, (laughs) yes. But realistically, two is my second favorite game, and not just because of Leon. So, yes, this game definitely gets a five Leons out of five. All right, Daniel, how many Rebecca's? We'll have to go with four as always, because she's not Lame. in it, but she won't be in there for a while. <laughs> Gosh. All right. So, until next time, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us tonight on the Resident Evil Lurecast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, tell a friend. Leave a comment and review. If you want to keep chatting with us about all things Resident Evil, you can find us on the Robots Radio Discord. You can also chat with us at RELurecast on Twitter. Till next time, stay safe out there. And remember, we might have something that might interest you, stranger. What up tonight, City? You're listening to N54 Radio. This is DJ Sparks bringing you a new hit show from Night City, Cyberpunk, a cyberpunk red live play podcast. Listen as a ragtag group slamming on the corpos. Survive the streets and try to keep from being flatlined. You can tune in on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. DJ Sparks out! Hello, this is Charlie Transmutation coming to you with another PSA announcement. No, Charlie. This is a commercial. What? Crap. Nobody told me that. What are you supposed to do in this thing anyway? Well, Charlie, I'm glad you asked. This is the part where we introduce our new homebrew 5e D&D podcast, The Fumbling Four and the Almighty Crit, where we explore the homebrew world of Alteris using homebrew rules and homebrew material from the Dungeon Master's Guild. Eh, sounds boring. I'm out of here. 
See you later, Charlie. We hope to have you guys come check us out soon. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts.